All right, hello, and welcome to Totem Talks Season 2. Yay, we made it. Season I know, two. seriously, we got through a whole one. season. We got renewed Yeah, uh, by ourselves. We produced this. That's so. true, well, although the negotiations <laughs> were pretty stiff with the Yeah, that's true. For the a while there, it was real shaky with us. Uh, but anyway, we hope you guys enjoyed all of Season 1 and our best of the rest and our award show. And uh, yeah. hopefully you guys had a happy and healthy holiday season. Right, right. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get Full right into the stuff. Talks yeah. Ahead, so. yeah, plenty of them, plenty of them. Um, but yeah, so this is Totem Talks. We are a podcast who is taking music and breaking it all down, taking artists, comparing them, contrasting them, seeing who is the best of all time. And uh, that's basically what we've been doing for a whole season yeah. and oh, is what that, we're going to continue to do. Is that what we do? I thought we were a, a, a business podcast. That would explain that's, your level of attentiveness. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway... Uh, that was the short. You got a name, sir. That was the short of it. Uh, yeah, I'm Pat, and uh, that's who I am. Okay, and I'm Nick, and that's also who I am. There we go. Yeah, and I am Barbara Bach, wife of Ringo Starr, our first celebrity okay. cameo wow. on the podcast. You sound way different than I assumed you would sound, Barbara. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I'm also not even a hundred percent sure that I pronounced my own last name correctly. Well, so. there's no way to know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got three artists. <laughs> On the podcast, they're right, excited so, to kick things off for the season. Yeah, for episode one, uh, what we're doing is we're breaking down The Wallflowers. Yes, indeed. Jethro Tull and The Stooges. Yes. Also or known as Iggy, Iggy and, and the Stooges, Stooges, depending on which record Jinx. that you're going by. So Now you can't talk for the rest of the episode. Good. All right, we're going to get a lot done here. Fine. Nick, I said your okay, name. Now thank you, you can speak. Yeah, that, that could have been really bad. All right, so uh, yeah, without any further ado, let's get started with The Wallflowers. Uh, so The Wallflowers is an American rock band, solo project, singer-songwriter kind of thing. Right, since 2014 it's yeah. been a solo project, but there's been no new material released in that right. time. Right, so they, they're primarily what we're focusing on is them as a band. Right, fronted by the person who still remains The Wallflowers, and I'm very yes. excited to, I think, tell Tyler for the first time that it's fronted by Jacob Dylan, son of Bob Dylan. That is correct. And that's who we've been listening to this whole time. Who? And you've talked about Bob Dylan before on the podcast, so I know you know who he is. You yeah, can't you, play dumb. You can't act like you don't know who Bob <laughs> yeah, Dylan is. you can't is. pretend. Yeah, no, I'm, I I know who Bob Dylan is. He's the guy who every single one of his songs is always some kind of uh, is always written as a palindrome. Yes, that's the one. Yep, that's the guy. That makes sense. Bob's a good name to have palindromic songs. So wow, wow, I didn't even guys. Yeah, incredible, incredible. You know what else is incredible? Us talking about these albums. Agreed. So we went over three Wallflower albums. Uh, the first one is an eponymous album, The Wallflowers, which came out in 1992. Great year. The year most of us were born. Yeah. Two uh, full thirds of yes, people Yes, two here. thirds of us were born then. Uh, then we listened to Bringing Down the Horse, which came out in 1996, uh, which is the year none of us were born. That's correct. Uh, and then we finished with Glad All Over, which came out in 2012. Which, if Alex was here, I think that's the year. That he was might born. be the year Alex <laughs> was about born. Eight, yeah. so. so cool. Uh, without any, without any stuff, let's let's get to talk about the Wallflowers. Nick, Great. do you want to go first? Sure, I would love to. Um, so going into this record, I mean, my only experience with the Wallflowers was what I assume most people's only experience with the Wallflowers is, and it's I knew the song One Headlight. I really. Right. Enjoyed the song One Headlight, but I never actually, you know, sat down and give, 
gave the Wallflowers more of a listen. It's a really long record. I mean, it's 12 yeah. songs, but it's like 70 minutes. But there wasn't a single minute of it that I didn't like. Uh, I thought it was all very pleasant to listen to. Uh, I mean, Jacob Dylan's voice is okay. He's a lot better than Dad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody <laughs> a is a sure. lot better than Bob Dylan uh, in terms of singing. Um but I feel like where he is definitely the strongest, and that goes throughout this record and all the others, is the instrumentation and the arrangements on these songs are by far the most interesting part for me. Uh, I really liked everything everything on the record because of how well-crafted the songs were. Um, Rami Jaffe, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly or not, but he's the keyboardist slash organist, and I felt like uh, his contributions to this record were incredible. incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Really fantastic work uh, that he he gives on all these records with the Wallflowers, which is probably why uh, he was recruited to join the Foo Fighters in 2005, and he's... Uh, been with the Foo Fighters for for quite some time. That makes a but, lot of sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, he's really yeah. great. I mean, he's really great. But I mean, I, somebody else's money. I felt like that that was the strongest guitar solo uh, on the record. That was really cool to listen to. I really enjoyed that. But it wasn't like particular tracks were really standing out to me so much as I just enjoyed the craftsmanship uh, of songwriting on the whole album. So it was it was less so about individual tracks for me than it was about the whole. And that's all I got. Sure. Uh, Tyler, why don't you tell us what you thought? Uh, so when I uh, when I read the list that we were doing the Wallflowers, uh, I got a little confused, and instead I listened to the this entire audiobook to The, the Perks, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Wallflower. <sighs> that makes so, sense. So my impression of the Wallflower is going to be a little bit different. You know, uh, for... Um, uh, for the book to choose, and you didn't even listen to the soundtrack of the movie, I mean, a book that's so much about a soundtrack and the songs, I, like, it's all about the music. I know. I'll be honest, Nick. I was I was just as confused as you yeah. are. Uh, <laughs> no. Well. So, uh, so, listening to it, I, I mean, it's so obvious that he's Bob Dylan's son because you can hear that in his voice. Right. Um. I wouldn't even so I guess the hardest part for me with this album is is really his his lack of articulation. Mm. He's not nearly as much of a mumble singer as his dad, but no. these are still songs you need to listen to like 3 or 4 times before you know what it is he's saying. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. Um other than that, like it was a really good. I mean, again, Apple Music drops the ball and throws this under the rock category, where I would probably give it more of a alternative or like a folk. I guess so. Yeah, there's sound definitely those to it. Yeah, I get where you're coming it's, from with that. It's, this is this is not what if if you wanted to listen to '90s rock, this is not an album I would suggest to you for '90s rock. No, it's it's got a lot more classic rock in it than '90s rock. Yeah, I would totally. agree with you there. Uh, so yeah, I'll. I'll go in and I'll start talking about it then. Um, the one thing I did want to point out is after this album, this uh, the Wallflowers left their record label. And the reason why is because the record label only wanted Jacob Dylan to market this as the son of Bob Dylan. Uh, right. They're right. like, you're going to sell so many more records if you say, oh, I'm Bob Dylan's son. And he's just like, I don't want to do that. I want to do it on my own merits. Right. Which, mad respect for that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, uh, so many people like would just take that opportunity and run mm -hmm. with it. And he didn't do that. And I think it worked out in the end. I mean, they're pretty yeah. famous. Relatively famous. Re I would agree. Uh, but in terms of the music itself, I enjoyed a lot of this album. Uh, I thought that it did have a little bit more alt, but also a lot more, like I said, classic rock. 
Uh, this felt like an album that could have come out like 15 years earlier than it did. Or maybe like almost mm-hmm. maybe even 20. like and, and still been really fitting in with where it was. Yeah. Um, I, what I said, what Nick and I were talking about uh, before this uh, with his voice, it sounds like, ironically, a mix between Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. But like the best parts of both of them, right? Which combined makes like an adequate singer. Adequate is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's not blowing the he's doors offensive. Uh, yeah. And but I think a lot of what helps him get away with it is he's definitely more of a more of a whisper singer. Yeah. He There's does. A, he does yeah. a lot more of that like low kind of gritty vocal. True. Like I'm almost positive that if you were to go to like you know if he was performing in the street somewhere without a microphone. And he had his whole band with him, or even just like an acoustic guitar. You probably wouldn't be able to hear him yeah. at all. Yeah, no. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Um, a couple specific songs I wanted to point out. Um, I really liked the the rhythmic piano feel in the song Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I mean, for most of these, I enjoyed the lyrics as well. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not I, surprised I, that he can write. Yeah, I was about to say, I, same exact thing. Yeah. I'm not surprised <laughs> that Jacob Dylan's a good songwriter. You know, anybody who knows who Bob Dylan is knows, right. you know, the songwriting. Uh, but uh, some of that stuff, somebody else's money, uh, I did think it, it dragged on a bit long for me. Um, I get that. Yeah, it was it, the guitar it, solo that was the, just a standout piece right. on the record I also like the instrument. message of it. Because mm-hmm. that message is literally like, I don't want to live on, like, basically my dad's money, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty, you know, again, we just talked about it. It's pretty cool. Uh, I also liked the song Ashes to Ashes. It's mm-hmm. It's got a lot more classic rock in it. Totally. Um, It's a little less intricate than some of these other songs, though. It's a little more simple, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, not at all. Uh, no. You know, you can't be super complex in every song, whatever. Uh, and then the other one, uh, Another One in the Dark, which... Felt really draggy to me, um, but I feel like it was redeemed by, like, if you managed to be interested the entire way through, you got rewarded with that, like, really kind of unusual vocal line at the end of the song, um, which was surprising, but uh, that was pretty much it. I mean, it was a solid debut album, yeah, and I enjoyed most of it. Yeah, I agree. It was it was very enjoyable to sit and listen yeah, to the thing. Yeah, so... What I'm going to do now is I'll go into bringing down the horse. Yeah, take it uh, away. So this came out about four years later. And, and four, at times, as many platinums. Yes. Uh. <laughs> uh, the song One Headlight is the opening track, and that kind of leads to my only real negative about this album. It felt really top-loaded. Hmm. So four of the first five songs are the band's top four singles. Sure. Which means... Right in the first five tracks, you're getting every song that this band is known for. And so it just, you get one headlight and then other songs that happen to <laughs> other sell songs, well yeah. in uh, on the coattails right. of one headlight. Not that it's not good, but, I, you know, they're yeah. definitely like a one hit wonder. Oh, I would agree <laughs> with you. They're a one hit wonder. Yeah. But I'm saying like you're you're hitting like five songs and four of them are arguably their top quality sure. pieces. Yeah. And then after that, you still have you know, six other songs on this album right? that really are good, but they're not as good. Uh, so I'm going to talk about those ones more than I am about One Headlight. Uh, what I will say about One Headlight is I thought it was really complex, and I thought it had a lot of growth throughout the song. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, but moving on to, like, the back half of the album, I thought there was some stuff that was, like, 
some straightforward rock songs. Uh, God Don't Make Lonely Girls and Angel on My Bike, I thought were a little too similar uh, sounding. Uh, I thought uh, that I Wish I Felt Nothing was a good ending of the album. I liked the slow pacing, the, the kind of bittersweet message and the quality in it. Um, laughing Out Loud, I thought was uh, like a fun, upbeat, but it had a lot less quality than some of these other songs. Uh, the song that I wanted to kind of highlight was the song Invisible City. So this previous track to Invisible City is The Difference, which I it, it felt really loud, it felt really shouty, and I thought Invisible City did a great job of kind of calming you down, letting you catch your breath, and really like delve into the music of it a little bit. Um, I thought the album was constructed okay, but like I said, replacing some of these weaker tracks in the second half with some of the stronger ones from the top half and creating more of a consistent dynamic throughout the album I think would have been a better choice. Okay. I get that. I get that, that. That's what I got on this. All right, cool. Um, so a few things that I wanted to bring up. One that you didn't touch on was just that aside from Jacob Dylan and Rami or Rami Jaffe, the whole band is different now. That is yeah, true. Everybody yeah. else has gone. The other three Once members. Once they went have to the gone. new label, a lot of people left. Yeah, broke right. Off. Uh, so there are a lot of other additional musicians like filling in and plugging in parts uh, as you go. Um, however, I felt like this album was really, really good. Uh, I I understand what you mean that it, it doesn't stay as strong as it goes along. But I wrote down, there's just something intangible that this album has that the first one didn't quite have that, like, sucked me in. And I, I was right there with it. I was ready to go where wherever Jacob Dylan wanted to take me for right. this record. It had, it, it had a hold on me. Uh, I really enjoyed it all the way through. This was also sort of where I started to hear the Tom Petty influence. Uh, a couple of these songs, I think, really reminded me of Tom Petty's style. And looking back at some of the other ones, it all makes sense. And you guys talking about like more of a classic rock influence on a lot of these pieces. Uh, laughing Out Loud in particular. And it makes so much sense because I'm like, Jacob Dylan probably knows Tom Petty. I mean, his dad was in a band with Tom Petty for a while when he was a kid and growing up like... He probably knew him. He probably listened to a lot of his music, had respect for him, and, yeah. and took some influence there, like, very personally. I would assume. That makes assume. a lot of sense. Um, but, I mean, I totally get why this record went four times platinum. I think it definitely deserved to. Um, just one or two other little interesting pieces for me would be uh, one of the people who was filling in was Matt Chamberlain, who was a drummer who played with Chris Cornell and Elton John uh, at different times. That's pretty you awesome. Know, uh, you know, a little uh, Six Degrees of Totem Talks, although I have a bigger one later. Good. And then also I found it very interesting that in my research, this album was the 86th highest selling album of the decade of the 1990s. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Like, to be a top 100 album in any given decade is a pretty big... Pretty, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a real feat. It shouldn't be I would under... Agree. Yeah, no, that's pretty awesome. Underappreciated. Uh, so, Tyler, what did you think of this bringing down the horse? So, I, I didn't get much of a difference between this one and the first one. Both... The first album and this album, to to me, very much kind of complemented each other. They, a lot of times when you listen to an artist's first album versus their their highest selling album, you you hear like you, you know a big difference, either a change in genre or a more polished sound. I I, I think one thing that that's very clear from the get go is what what they put out on both this album and their first were very thought out and were were meticulously put together and and mastered 
the way that they wanted it to sound. Nothing in this second album sounds out of place. If it, if you were to take one of the tracks from the second album and drop it into the first album, you wouldn't suddenly have like this really drastic difference in sound or this, you know, kind of offsetting like, oh, this doesn't go with what I heard before. Um but unfortunately, in that respect, it, it kind of makes one of the two almost forgettable. For me, I feel like whichever one of these two albums you get to first will be the one that you prefer over the other. Hmm. Okay, I get what you mean. I don't, I don't really think that there's enough distinction between the two that you would ultimately kind of like favor one or the other based on the albums themselves. Sure. I think it's whatever you kind of got to hear first and enjoyed and then whatever you heard next was just kind of what you heard next. Not necessarily saying that you wouldn't like it or anything, but you know, nothing nothing about this album screams you know different or or the next level, which is not necessarily right. a negative. I mean, there is something to be said about a consistent sound without being repetitive, but it 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 it's nothing got changed, nothing got kind of reinvented. So it's, and I'm trying not to not to sound overly negative, and I can't think of a better word to say this, but it's almost a little stagnant in that you know you listen to the first album, you listen to the second album, and if somebody just told you that this was a double disc album, you probably wouldn't. Bad and eyelash. It'd be quite the album too. Seventy minutes <laughs> yeah. and then another fifty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be long. By but... any chance, did you know the song One Headlight? Just out of curiosity. No, okay. I I did not know any of their songs going into this. Figured I'd ask. It was worth a shot. Uh, do you want to just take us into the last one then? Uh, to Glad All Over, all the way up to twenty twelve. So is this before or after they split? So uh, again, it's this is all before. new musicians. Yeah, but, but it's, it's still, still a band. It's still Dylan and okay. Jaffe at this point, and then like other people. It's it hasn't just become the Dylan solo project yet. Okay, so I I wasn't sure because that was gonna kind of change my opinion there. Right. As far as like sound goes, it still seemed consistent with what was coming out before. Although I'd say this one had definitely more of a what I would give a rock sound to. Like I know you were yeah. saying classic rock with the first album, but with me, the first and second album had had were not nearly as upbeat. As what I consider classic rock to be. Okay. That's why I was giving it more of a folky sound. This one kind of ups the tempo a little bit. Yeah, that's with definitely their songs. True. Um, I feel like again, not that the the first two albums were depressing in any way, but they were definitely had more of a somber feel to it. Where this one feels a little bit more uplifted, but again, not drastically so. Like we don't get like really big dance numbers in this or anything like that. Like it's still staying true to its genre. This one just feels like it was probably written while he was at a better place. Maybe it just sure. seems like there's there's more positive vibes to get out of this one than the first two were. I, yeah, I get what you mean. Um, I think this is a pretty solid record as well. I mean, I didn't dislike anything else on it. Um, nothing quite hit bringing down the horse for me. Yeah. But I just ve- I very much liked the first and the last album. There was never a point when I was like, eh. But they just, didn't, they just don't quite hit that level for me. I definitely felt like the Bruce Springsteen in Jacob's 
Jacob Dylan's God, voice and style like older. came yeah yeah that yeah. really came to a head for this album although I don't you know I I don't hate him for it uh, I just thought it was interesting some of the things happened on this record like that they had uh, Mick Jones from the Clash featured on some of the record uh, tracks and also the new drummer is Jack Irons who was the founder of founding drummer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers the so, Mick fascinating that he's on here the Mick Jones tracks are are probably the ones that stick out the most because they don't have like the same kind of kind of feeling behind them as the other ones like the one track um reboot the mission is mm-hmm. is almost like a club mix like it's almost like a dance number which isn't okay. which like it isn't bad but isn't what you would have expected yeah i mean i would say the thinking of what i know about the clash and what i know about the first couple records from the wallflowers it, they weren't necessarily styles of music that i would have considered mixing put together you would, yeah. would you say that they maybe clashed ah i see what you did there um I'm not going to reveal to the audience that, that I'm a big Clash hater, so I don't want them to know and make judgments about me for not liking the Clash yet. Does that mean you want me to edit what you just said out oh, of the podcast? Uh, I want you to talk about this record so that everybody just forgets. Oh, sure. What I'll talk about it, uh, I agree with you in a sense. Uh, what I wrote, my big note was a little bit less inspired, but all around a solid album that holds up. Yeah, and and that's pretty much what I have. I had a few songs that I enjoyed. I enjoyed the song First One in the Car. I enjoyed the song The Devil's Waltz. I thought they were good tracks. I thought all the way through it was a solid album. Uh, nothing, uh, like you said, nothing jumped out at me. Yeah. Um, I do agree with Tyler. It did feel a little bit more positive for a lot of I it. I get that. Um, which is... I hate to say this, which is it's almost like a negative for the music because the lyrics and the and the vocals don't feel as emotional, right? Or you know, but I mean at the same time, like you can hear that there's talent. You yeah. can hear that he's a good songwriter because he's he's still managing to convey his his feelings. Totally. Um, they're just slightly less relatable. Maybe uh, we're also listening right. to it in 2020, <laughs> 2021, That range. Sure. So. Not a great time for humanity. <laughs> Not a great time for positivity. Well, yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's why we're like we don't relate to it because everything sucks. could be. Could be. What are you uh, talking about? I thought you tested positive. <laughs> oh no, I did not. Yeah, all right. How dare all right. you? Can't even joke about that. Yeah, right. Um, I tested uh, positive for being fun. Yeah, right. Um, should but, we? Should yeah. we grade? Pat is positively yeah. tested for being right. fun. So yeah, we're grading. Uh, I mean, I think they're gonna get. A little bump above our normal one-hit wonder status for the grade, because um, Jacob Dylan is is still the son of one of, of the most popular folk singer of all time. Cultural impact, or is that a little bit of an X factor for them? I don't um, think. I mean, I mean, I certainly knew that about the Wallflowers his, long before we ever considered even doing this podcast. I yeah, knew but they I feel like because. I feel like the fact that he intentionally didn't advertise himself as Dylan's son means that means I that, mean, that didn't impact his, yeah, the culture for them it didn't impact the culture for them and also like i don't think anybody knows uh, I, I certainly mean, didn't know well that is not a barometer for anything <laughs> um i would so my my only argument would be that i feel like because they made like he made a concerted effort to not have that color the culture of the right. band no. it's just a little bit of an x factor like okay oh by the way this is Bob right, dylan's son's fine. project uh, but it, it was also a pretty huge one hit. I mean, you don't get four times platinum being an absolute nobody. What I'm saying is I don't think they deserve a flat one. No. That's I mean, all I'm saying. I, I think 
where I was leaning was like maybe like a 1.4. That's totally fine. Yeah, like I don't think all the way to a one and a half because really none of these other tracks. No, there. Even though we pretty much liked them all. Oh, I mean, for they sure. just didn't really hit. So I agree. 1.4 is fine. Uh, they have exactly six records. Right. So their breadth of work would be putting them at average. I think that you give them a little bit of a bump for the fact that they're all, you know, very solid. Right. And then um, a, probably a f- one gold, one quadruple platinum. I, that that helps a little. I mean, right. even though the other four didn't necessarily get certifications, again, most bands are never going to get a platinum record, let yeah. alone two that certified and one that went four times Yeah, platinum. so, I mean, that definitely bumps them a bit. Uh, I think we can all agree that doesn't bump them above a five. It's not in the sixes, though. Not in the sixes. Not in the sixes, no. Do you want to give them a six? I was... That was the general area where I was at. I was like yeah. five. The music was all good and solid. They yeah. sold decently. I, I think we're gonna. I think we're a difference of decimals here. So that's I mean, fine. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm. I don't have hard feelings right. on this one. Uh, I'd be putting them probably at like a five seven five eight. Five eight seems. I good think. To me. Yeah, I think they're up there. They deserve to be above mm-hmm. average, but only having the average number of band of albums, only having two of them certify. You know, those yeah, things I get you. I get you. add a little bit, but not a lot. Okay. Uh, for instrumental talent, I want to say that I don't think any of them are bad. I think no. their greatest strength is the way that they orchestrated the pieces. I think while okay. they are very solid players, their songwriting talent is much better. They're much better at crafting songs than they are at like, showing off on individual instruments. Yeah, the only But the only Rami Jaffe, I think, is fantastic. The only exception yeah. would be the piano. Yeah, exactly. That that you were right on the same page for that one. So I'm okay with that bumping them a little bit above a five. Yeah, I think maybe a little bit less than the breadth of work, though. Yeah, agree. So you know, still up in that five and a half above range. Okay, just a little Um, bit lower. How about a five six? That's perfect. Yeah. Okay. Now songwriting is definitely uh, above those for me. I think songwriting is probably uh, a really strong category for them in terms of orchestration. What hurts them for me is that, sort of as Tyler had alluded to, they found their sound, and, and all these it. records seem to really fall within for that sure. sound. But the individual pieces are always very well crafted and well thought out and layered. Yeah. So. So, uh, I mean, I'm I could be in the sixes. Here. That's exactly what I was thinking. Okay. Again, so um, I don't want to go crazy. It was no. also only six records worth of work, so. Uh, Six records worth of solid work yeah. that was well-crafted but a bit repetitive. Right. What do we think about a 6.4? That sounds perfect. I was thinking okay. a 3 or a 4, so that works. Okay, yeah. That that seems fair a to 6. me. A 6.3 or 4, not a yes, 3 Yes, correct. Four. And then last but not least, that brings us to Poetic Talent. And I know you dug in a little. I, I thought that he was a very good writer, but... Yeah, so, I mean, listening to it, he, he definitely was able to convey stories you know, in, in a very similar vein to his dad. I'm sure he doesn't love sure. the comparison, but right. it's definitely like a talent that has carried on. I also can get that maybe he pulled from some of the same experiences that... Sure. And to be know, clear, I don't think it was like derivative of Bob Dylan oh, in any not. way. Literally, any way. you would not listen to this and think, oh, this sounds like Right, Bob exactly. Dylan I don't want anyone to think that we think that. Uh, I'm just like, because I know who it is, I'm trying to to feel the similarities sure. and if you really think about it you can feel some similarities totally. but definitely not derivative no uh, I would be honestly giving him a very good score for this not 
incredibly high, but he's no Phil Oaks. No, but I mean over mm. six and a half, not sure. quite up in the sevens. I'm fine with that for the sheer reason of none of these songs like struck the world. Gotcha. How about a six point seven? That's perfect. Yeah. That's and then right there. what do we want to do about the whole? Dylan family X Factor. Thing. I think that's a half a point. A half a point. Yeah, I mean it's definitely nothing, nothing too crazy. Sure. But you know, Bob Dylan's son being in a a multi platinum selling band yeah, is that's pretty is cool. Worthy of an X Factor. All right. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, let's move on to Jethro Tull. Cool. All right. Uh, let's move on to Jethro Tull. Uh, Jethro Tull. They are were a are a British rock band. They were formed in Blackpool, Lancashire, in nineteen sixty seven. And, uh, yeah, they initially played some blues, rock, jazz, fusion, and then uh, they kind of grew their sound after that. Yeah, yeah, into Uh, every conceivable genre. Yeah, so (laughs) they were active from 67 to 2012, and then again from 2017 until the present day. Right. You know, continuing on. Uh, So the three albums we went over for Jethro Tull, we started with the album This Was, which was released in 1968, uh, the UK released 69 in the US. Uh, then we listened to Aqualung, which was released in 1971, and then JTull.com, which was released in 1999. Yes, we could have done the Jethro Tull Christmas album. However, we've kind of made it a rule that we don't do Christmas albums. Plus, with this album coming out right after Christmas, like, lame, right? True, although I will... You don't do Christmas music again until next True. November. True, although I will say that a lot of their... Um, Christmas music was like original Jethro Tull music as well. So it's not like they were, it was just an album where Jethro Tull covered a bunch of Christmas songs. You heard it here first. Nick's mm-hmm. favorite Jethro Tull album was the Jethro Tull Christmas uh, album. It was not. I I think Tyler will agree that with That is on this. exactly it, what I heard. Yeah, if I say anything about Christmas music that doesn't sound like I'm lambasting it, then that is that is praise from me. Fair enough. What's interesting, our listeners at home can't read the subtitles under Nick, which says, I really, really love Christmas music. That's true. The so. subtitles do say that. They do. They do. Uh, but Nick, uh, what I want to know is what you thought of the album This Was. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, so this is definitely an album where I remember as a kid the day that I went to the like FYE or the music store and bought the CD for the first time and listened to it on my way home with my mom in her car. Uh, I love this record. I've always loved this record uh, as long as I've known about it you know i was a fan of jethro toll obviously but i was a kid and i didn't know a ton of stuff i had like greatest hits albums one or two other popular ones and i wanted to get into some more stuff so this album was almost sort of like a surprise that they were such a bluesy band uh when they first started with a totally different guitarist than mick abrahams who was excellent on this record i mean he plays really well absolutely um and a couple of classic Tull songs for me, like My Sunday Feeling and a song for Jeffrey. The one that sticks out the most is Someday the Sun Won't Shine for You. I absolutely love that song. Uh, and I really love that they went for so many instrumentals on here. Yeah. And and they did a nice job with all of them. Um, Cat Squirrel is on this, which was also on uh, one of the Cream records that we listened to at the conclusion uh, of season one. So that's kind of a cool little place to pick up. Is that what you wanted to be the six degrees of total? Oh no no no! You just you just wait for that. I've got uh, a really great one. But I think okay. there's some there's some great bass stuff in here. I mean, it really showcases the instrumentalists well. I think it's amazing that Ian Anderson had barely been playing the flute at all when when this was recorded. I mean, he essentially was a guitarist who was frustrated that he wasn't getting as good as quickly as Mick Abraham's was, 
or he was listening to other guys playing around in the clubs in England at the time, like Clapton, and he's like, I'll never be this good. Let me just, I don't know, pick up another instrument. How about a flute? And then Jethro Tull became synonymous with the flute. And Ian Anderson really. became arguably the greatest rock flautist of all yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, seriously, is there anyone Slim in... competition, but he still won it. True, true. But can you think of an instrumentalist in rock who is more synonymous with their instrument than Ian Anderson with the flute? I mean, there's so many guitarists that it's hard to pick just one. Same thing with drummers and vocalists. Like, Ian Anderson is the flute to rock music. Yeah, I... Uh... I definitely agree with you. I Yeah, that's it. I definitely agree yeah. with you. He was amazing. Okay. But, uh, I mean, other than that, I mean, wonderful album, but it's going to be the it's the first and last with Abrahams. So, right. I mean, we're definitely going to see a whole new set of styles for, for Tull afterwards. But I really like that it starts with this jazzy blues. And then, you know, because that's just another thing that they have in their repertoire moving forward. Uh, I just want to point out, I, I did think of somebody more synonymous with their instrument. Oh, you're it's thinking Tommy of Hall Tommy Hall. Hall on the electric drug, drug. yeah. Okay. Thirteenth floor elevators. Yeah. I I knew that's what you're gonna say. <laughs> just name another one. I cannot. Exactly, but uh, yeah, continue. I just I just no no no. I'm good. I'm, I think I've said everything. I, need. I I could wax poetic about every Toll album. So all right, yeah. So I'll talk about this was then, and I pretty much agree with you all the way through. Really great start for Jethro Tull. I had heard a bit of Jethro Tull, but was definitely less versed in it than you are yeah and i really enjoyed a lot of these groovy blues tones that they were going for um i did enjoy like the spattering of flute in each song and then there were a couple songs when it got like really like it was the main ingredient of the song Mm -hmm. uh that's just something that you don't hear often no uh which is really it's really great when you kind of mix an instrument that's you know way more classically influenced and put it into a rock setting right uh, like, I really enjoy there's some albums where, like, the classical guitar gets to shine, uh, which actually, you know, brings a whole different sound to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and or, or, like, when rock brings in the horn sections as well. You know that I, I know, love that. I know, <laughs> but I agree with you. You know mm-hmm. that I love that as well. Uh, some of the specific stuff uh, for Someday the Sun Won't Shine for you, you already mentioned it. I just want to oh, point so out good. what I really liked about that was that they had these really great guitar-based tandem lines. Yes. Oh. I thought that was really well done. Totally. A lot of the times when you're in a, like a song, uh, and for those of you who maybe don't listen like as deep, um, they do where the, the, the bass will just kind of chunk like the one and the five or mm-hmm. like, and like oh, it yeah. creates like this like rhythmic line underneath. But when you actually have the bass and the guitar moving in the same direction on the same notes, it just creates this really depth of sound. Mm-hmm. Big shout out to Glenn Cornick on this album. Really yeah, nice absolutely. bass lines. Absolutely. Um, so Serenade to a Cuckoo, uh, which is an instrumental piece. Uh, the only thing that I'll say about it, it... In the beginning, it's it felt very Muzaki. Okay, yeah. Um, it did build throughout the song and become a really good instrumental by the end. It just like in the beginning, that's like the only downside to like basically only having a flute. <laughs> sure. Yeah. If you start off with just the flute and it's just kind of it's not doing a crazy solo, it's just like playing itself. Or, yeah, or no, no, I get you. Playing it, but it does create like a little bit of like a "Am I waiting for an elevator?" kind of sound. Right. But then once the instruments came in and the flute was still there, front and center, like 
you know, but but doing a little bit more, and mm-hmm. the rest. And then it was like a really good instrumental piece. Yeah, and that actually reminds me. Before, sorry not to interrupt, but no, you're good. Clive Bunker also has a drum solo in Dharma for One, which is fantastic. I mean, like yeah. they get little moments I, where everybody shines. That, on this that was the note was that I had for note? Dharma oh, okay. for One. I was like, yeah, uh, what a drumming showcase! Uh, yeah, in this one. fantastic. I, I mean, all the way through, they gave they gave a chance for each individual person to shine, and it was very very solid all the way through. With some flashes of real potential, mm-hmm. and I very much enjoyed it. Excellent, Tyler. Um, I don't know, dog. This one just like it didn't hit it for me. The flute needs work. Um, I don't know what impression you're doing. You said dog, so I assume you're trying to be Randy. Randy Jackson, Jackson was what I was thinking. No, it's not great. I was going. I was going for um. Frank Reynolds. Okay, because what it sounded like was... Oof. It sounded like Randy Jackson doing a Christopher Walken impression. <laughs> That's kind of where we landed. All right. Oh, man. I'm still... I I, I stand by it. Yeah, you may. Uh, yeah, this one didn't work for me, but um, I'm, I'm happy to say that the next album we covered was fantastic. All right, well, if you just want to jump into Aqualung, then you can go for it. Yeah, I love Aqualung. This was like night and day to me. Okay. Um, I love I love when songs can actually tell stories, not just like you know you know a poem about a feeling or emotion or a breakup, but like there is like a, a narrative behind mm-hmm. it. This. Oh yeah, that's Ian Anderson to a T. Yeah. This this was great. Uh, I couldn't even like pick one track on this album that I would say that I liked above any others. Um, I guess one that stuck out the most to me was probably Cross-Eyed Mary. Great song. But I I mean, everything else on here was great too. I, I ironically, which Pat will probably disagree with, um, but Nick will agree. Um, the, the tracks on this album that I didn't enjoy were like the one two minute tracks because so many of the tracks on this album are like good long songs so when you get done listening to like the opening track Aqualung is like six Mm -hmm. minutes and then Cross-Eyed Mary that's four minutes and then Cheap Day Return is only a minute and 20 you're like well come on I want a little bit more give me more right Yes. I get so what you're if you're saying from. the negative is that you wanted more, yeah, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think so. I'll go second, and I'll let you sure. do the double yeah. into the last album. Uh, for Aqualung, I I get where you're coming from. The only reason I don't agree is because I thought that what they did in those short songs would have maybe lacked if they were longer. Like for instance, in the song "Cheap Day Return," there's this great like folky double acoustic mm-hmm. that was really refreshing and interesting. But I feel like if you did that for three minutes, it would get boring. So, like, I le- that's why I liked it. I thought it was, like, really in-your-face, interesting, different than the last song. And then it let you go back into a longer song with, like, Mother Goose at, like, almost four minutes again. But you see, that's where you and I differ. Because I'm always, like, give me the extended director's cut. <laughs> and you're like, just give me the TV version that's even shorter than the theatrical. <laughs> that is absolutely not just give the me, way this went no. down. Give me the no. Spark Notes version of Lord of the Rings. I don't need to experience <laughs> it. Yeah, so... I get, uh, listen, regardless, this is a phenomenal album. Uh, Obviously, well, well worth being their number one best-selling album. Uh, Each single track on this is different. It's interesting. The lyrics are amazingly done. Oh, Ian Um, Anderson is big on lyrics. So, 
Uh, my favorite part of this album is the the kind of divisiveness of it, though. So the fans all think of this as a concept album. He does not. And he is like, absolutely not. That's not what it is. Uh, but the lyrics and the way it's written is just this like this like kind of call against organized religion, mm-hmm. which is so interesting to me. It's definitely not a call against spirituality. Like no. there is definitely that like call of like you can believe in like a higher power and like and things like that. But like uh, specifically the last track, Wind Up, the one lyric, it's something like, you know, my God's not someone I have to wind up every Sunday. Like, sure. I, well, think. About, I mean, even think about him. Forty three. Like, it, I don't even think he's yeah. negatively trying to kill everybody who's religious on this record. Sure. You know, he's saying. I think the lyrics to him. Forty three. If I recall, or you know, Jesus. If Jesus saves, he better save himself from the glory, glory seekers yeah. who use his name in death. Like he's very I, much saying, like people are using religion for bad. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I just think it is such like an interesting message, especially like that's an argument that is still happening every day today. Mm-hmm. And is, he just hits the nail on the head so many, you know, 1971. Yeah. Right. And you know what's super interesting? Because I was watching a documentary just talking about, like, the deeper meaning. His lyrics yeah. are often veiled yeah. as to what he's really talking about. Locomotive Breath, he said, was really a song concerned about climate change and the environment all the way back okay. in 1971. That was Which, something that he uh, yeah, was thinking about. Still much, much more even in yeah. the forefront of our minds today. Oh, totally. It's getting worse, people. But yeah. uh, uh, the other thing that I'll mention, I, I did my little bit about individual songs. I loved the classical influences. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, granted, we've talked about this before. Nick and I are both suckers for like the classical influences. Totally. I do want to say on the song My God, there's some classical guitar. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. I love when you bring in these different instruments. So they brought in a flute, which is what Jethro Tull's sound is known for. Right. On that song, they're bringing in the classical guitar, which is just that that slightly different feeling. It's not as twangy. It's just really lilty playing, and, and, and it's just really well done. Um, the only, it's not even a negative. I I think we can all agree Ian Anderson is not the strongest singer. No, no. He is a very good singer. He Very he, unique. Very unique sounding mm-hmm. voice was exactly what I was going to say. It's not the strongest. You know, he's not going right. to go compare to like Steve Perry sure. or, or yeah. you know. I mean, and he like knows that. that. He even said himself, like, you know, the reason I was a singer of Jethro Tull is because we're all sitting around with our instruments one day and we all try to sing. I'm like, well, I guess you're the best. It's like yeah, he, he, was, hey. he was the only one who wasn't terrible, I guess so. Uh, but really well done all the way through. And like I said, that's that would be my only comment on it. It's not even a negative because even though I'm very like sensitive to singers, like he doesn't stick out to me at all. Like he doesn't right. stick out as like a, a negative to me at all. Yeah. Oh, totally. All right. Uh, so then you're done, and I'm gonna. Turn I'm on. done, and you're gonna all talk. Right, about fantastic. It. So uh, interesting little story to get us to this record. I mentioned that in the first record, the guitarist Mick Abrahams, it was also his last. So yes. Tull was kind of at a loss. They were still playing. Uh, and they were, you know, pretty popular in England, and they had a lot of gigs to do, so they were trying to find people to fill in. They auditioned uh, Mick Taylor, who at the time, I believe, was with John Mayall, but he would eventually join the Rolling Stones. Uh, and also, Tony Iommi was in the, the band for a hot second, who is from Black Sabbath, if wow. you don't know. yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they finally uh, found their missing piece with Martin Barr, who I have long believed is one of, if not the most underrated guitarist in classic rock history, because Martin Barr is phenomenal. And it's not it like it doesn't matter if he's 
supposed to be playing a classical guitar piece, a blues piece, a jazz piece, a heavy metal piece almost even. The guy is just, I mean, he's he's fantastic. He can do no wrong to me, and it seems like whatever Tull needs him to do, whichever new space they need him to explore, he comes up with brilliant parts for it. Um, the only song that I really want to touch on that we haven't touched on as a group so far is my favorite Jethro Tull song of all time, which is Locomotive Breath. I, I yeah. mentioned it as being, you know, kind of a, a lookout for climate change type song. But that piano intro is is one of my favorite musical moments ever. I mean, what a fantastic build that is. And then it just kind of lays it all down and it starts chugging and the piano just really beautifully mimics the sound yeah. of a locomotive moving along uh, and it's just it's so well done all the way through i mean is jethro toll a blues band or a jazz band or a folk band or a classical band yes. or i mean like exactly the answer it's is just yes. <laughs> so cool to see them explore all these different areas and they really excel wherever they go uh and i think you guys really covered all the rest of my feelings so why don't we go way 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 far into the future to 1999 in the dot-com era. So Y2K yeah, it's is a big about thing. to happen. And, uh, you know, bringing in the new millennium, even though we really didn't. It didn't start until 2001. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, so I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I mean, as... At seven? No. I mean, I was terrified when I saw that this album gotcha. was called okay. jtoll.com. Okay, because, you know, I've uh, you've heard what I've had to say about Jethro Tull so far. Yeah. I listened to at least 11 of their albums in the last two weeks. I will say also, I'm assuming... Yeah. That we both went into this, like, we've heard now a lot of artists who were really famous in the 60s Correct. and 70s and 80s who released stuff this yeah. late and were just and like, it didn't why work. did we do that? Yeah, exactly. I get it. So, yeah, so I was scared. I was looking at I was looking at the fact that it was .com and I'm like, Jethro Tull, you know, they went into the sense a little bit in the 80s yeah. and, and kind of overdid it and then stepped back. Um, but all in all, I felt like the arrangements... And the music on this album was terrific. Uh, I would definitely agree. The arrangements and the music was, I mean, it was really well done. Um, there were some really interesting, weird melodies on things like Hunt by Numbers. I just felt like he was still doing unique stuff. But I would say like half of these songs could have probably just not had vocals. Like, you know, they had four tracks on their first record that were instrumentals. They could have had like five or six tracks that were just instrumentals on this one, and that it, it would have just been better. Or fourteen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't want to rip Ian Anderson vocally. Um, it is, is nothing. Like, it is literally nothing to do with Ian Anderson yeah. as a as a singer. He's not yeah. singing badly. No, he it's just, just is out of voice. His yeah. voice is just gone at this point. Exactly. Which happens. Totally. Especially, I actually saw Ian. I've, this is one of those people I've seen in concert. I've seen Ian Anderson uh, sans Jethro Tull. Okay. And as a flautist, phenomenal. It was great seeing that. He was touring with, I cannot remember who the, the woman was, but she was a classically trained violinist. And okay. the two of them, I mean, it was incredible, the show. But he had no voice left to sing no. with whatsoever. And so this is extremely common, especially now that you've told me the origins of how he became the singer. Yeah. Uh, that almost definitely means he had no vocal technique. Right. And yeah. it means that he probably didn't take care of his voice. Correct. Which, it happens. If you don't take care of your voice when you're younger, mm -hmm. by, you know, warming up, warming down, drinking tea, you know, you can't, like, when you're younger, yeah, you can push through, you know, and... Every singer's done it. I mean, I've done it when sure. we've had like, yeah, back-to-back yeah. gigs. If I'm really flagging, 
I'll just push through and I know that I'm going to regret that if yeah. I don't take care of myself. But throughout the years of doing that, you know, especially be, becoming as giant as Jethro Tull did and like yeah. constantly touring and, and doing all these things, your voice will just weaken and run out. Yeah. And that's what happened. Here. Yeah. It's lucky for him that he wasn't a partier, too. Because if he was out running around screaming yeah. and partying after the shows, it's funny because he would definitely he would be the guy who just went back to his room while like they would open for Zeppelin, which was some of their earliest breaks was touring with Zeppelin. And, you know, John Bonham would be out there peeing in the ice machines in the hotels and running around trashing hotel rooms. Yeah. But and I mean, he and Anderson would be like sitting there reading a book and having a cup of tea before bed. It's one of those things. I mean, it is probably good for him. It probably extended his career by like 10 years. Yeah. I just I do wish that he, you know. Uh, granted, I don't know for sure. Maybe he did do vocal technique, and maybe his voice just only had that much in yeah, it. Yeah, who knows? But it it feels to me, listening to this, like this is somebody who just didn't take care of their voice. You know, I mean, we go back to like certain other singers, like you know, all the way back to Elton John. Yeah, similar age at this point, right? But still got it. Still got a great voice because he meticulously cares for his right. instrument. Um, also, it probably doesn't help that he plays the flute. I know sure. the flute is very, very breath heavy on your throat, which is mm-hmm. dries it out. So you're drying out your voice even when you're not singing. Yeah. Which can be a little tough. Um, but did you have more to say? I, I didn't mean to No, I off. mean, I would just say there's, a, there's a, a bonus track on here, though, that's from Ian Anderson's solo album, The Secret Language of Birds, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Stay, stay for that bonus track. Okay, so I will talk about it a little bit. Um, I thought that... It was slightly bland in comparison to the older work, but only slightly. I thought that it still had, like Nick said, a lot of the characteristics of classic Jethro Tull songs. I thought that um, the only negative that I really had was what we just talked about. Ian's voice is totally shot by this point. It does detract a little bit. Now, I did think they did a couple a couple songs on here. They did a good job of masking it yeah. by having him more speak. Mm-hmm. Um, the songs, the song "Hot Mango Flush" and "Mango Surprise," which were um, thematic plays on each other. Sure. Yeah. Musically, they were good. Oh, totally. And what they did though is they just basically had him speak, which he just shouldn't have done on those songs. I'm not disagreeing yeah. with you, but I'm saying I I know what vocally you're saying, yeah. you didn't make him sing, right? And therefore, it wasn't a bad vocal performance. Correct. If he's just talking like. You know, thematically, they used that, like, him just saying, like, hot mango flush. Like, yeah, that's not taxing on your voice, and it doesn't it doesn't show that you don't have any voice left. Correct. Uh, other than that, some of the the titles are a little funny, like the title dot com. Uh, obviously, hot mango flush, what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, what The one that I really enjoyed was the dog ear years. As just as far as the title, you mean? Uh, or no, the song? Uh, the song. Okay. Because you were just talking about, oh, the titles are Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, you know I just jump back and forth. I have a million thoughts, and I just say them all. Okay, fair enough. Because uh, I was going to say, I'll give you great Jethro Tull titles if you want them. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've I've read a couple yeah. of them. I went through a little bit of them. Okay. Wow. And you gave me another list of... You gave I me did. I, may, I gave these. Pat a signed listening for, for Jethro Tull um, to cover the other albums. <laughs> uh, the Dog Ear Years. Uh, I really enjoyed this as a reflection song. This, this type of album, when you get later on in like a classic rock band's career... You always kind of get one or two of these where it's just like a look back and there are varying levels of success on how you relate to them or how you enjoy them. I did really enjoy this. Um, you, you know, I'm trying to listen past the vocals on this and listen to the lyrics and listen to the message. I thought the melody was really nice and I did think the message was was really sweet. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- that was all I had to say. A solid album. Yeah. 
that just it could have been a lot worse could have been then... so much worse especially yeah. with the title was scary exactly uh so yeah i'm um, maybe like a c yeah sure tyler what do you think wow okay so i was not expecting you guys to talk as much about this <laughs> did we cover all your talking points I, so, I mean, I'll just say this. I, I didn't hate it, but it was definitely a little bit blander. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, yeah. that's all I could really say without being a musician. <laughs> right. That's well, nice you stuff. would agree with us about his voice, you think, right? I, you interesting that you didn't notice. I, okay, well, that, that's interesting to hear. You know? I, don't really, I don't really listen to singers' voices unless they're, like, just awful like impossible to understand or there's something incredibly like like noteworthy like bob dylan is such a unique sounding voice i notice his voice you know same with you know same with like john goodman whenever he sings (laughs) all right fair enough interesting a to b there but that's okay Skipped right over Randy Newman. Yeah, yeah, I would. I I don't know. I would. I would put John Goodman and Bob Dylan on the same level as far as like singing voices go. I, I would argue if... John Goodman's a better singer. Yeah, I'm not sure if I heard him sing, but you I'll... would have definitely heard him when you were a small child because he sang in the end credits of Monsters Inc. Okay, that's possible. Which I know you've seen because you yeah. told me you saw it once when you were a child. Yeah, I had the DVD. Yeah, he sang um when he was in the Frosty the Snowman sequel. Yeah, nope. He was okay. the voice of Frosty. I believe you. Let's grade Jethro Tull. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh cultural impact. So Tull is an important group. I in would agree classic with you rock. there, yeah. Uh, they've definitely had a lot of influence, and they've had a lot of influence on so many different genres, which is interesting to me. Like other prog artists, like Keith Emerson will talk about how much they love Ian Anderson, but then also like heavy rock people like uh, Iron Maiden and Dream Theater will talk about how Tull was influential. Eddie Vedder has talked about it. Geddy Lee has talked about how influential. Right. But also like indie artists like the decemberists are also you know like all these are different people who cite jethro tull as important to them they had a ton of hits throughout the 70s um i mean and they they got a lot of records that uh certified i think they should be definitely above average wow okay that was a very strong argument for above average i gave look i was nervous as to where you were going to be and i didn't want to get in a big fight so i wanted to lay my (laughs) argument out there tell you it had to be above a five and then let you say a number okay i mean listen if you look at it they have 21 albums that they released correct i'm not talking about their breadth of work but you know i'm seeing a bunch of gold 10 10 certified platinum like a ton yeah a ton of certified albums and most of those records throughout the 70s and early 80s had at least one or two songs that ended up being pretty big hits for them right and i mean also if you look at the u.s chart position the reason i'm looking at the u.s chart position on some of these is because they're a british band correct so it's a lot harder for a british band to chart in the u.s i know the beatles and you know funny story too before they had even come to the u.s you could actually if you watch the the documentary of woodstock you can hear some of the songs from the first Jethro Tull record being played over the PA system between bands. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So it's like they were known yeah. over here even. So I think if you look at all of that combined, mm-hmm. I'm definitely above average. I mean, Good. 
I'm 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 well into the sixes. I might even top out at a seven. Let's go there. That's where I want to go. I really think I a seven, seven fits because you know they're not up in the range of like if I tell you to name five classic bands, you're not sure. going to name Jethro Tull. No, but, but if I was like Nate, what are the first fifteen or twenty classic rock bands that come to your head? That, that they, Jethro Tull is going to come up they there. Could yeah, get there. Uh, I do. I do think that they deserve that spot. So a Agreed. seven works. Uh, Breath of Work. Like Again, they're going to do about. well. Yeah, they, they 21 studio albums. Yeah. So we're talking more than three times the average. Uh, I think 10 of them were gold. Aqualung was triple platinum. They had multiple greatest hits go platinum. Several live albums go gold and platinum and all right. that stuff. Uh, and the music is fantastic on almost all of those records. I would definitely agree with you. Um, I didn't listen to every album. I listened to I Damn listened Near Close. I listened to the three plus the assigned listening you gave yeah. me, so an extra 10 songs spattered throughout the rest Correct. of the albums. And, and I would agree. Yeah. Solid quality throughout. And I also think the fact that they got to number one on the U.S. charts twice with two concept albums that were literally one song long, Thick as a yeah. Brick and Passion Play, like the fact that you could take that kind of an artistic move and still hit number one on the U.S. It's charts very is impressive. really impressive. Uh, so I want to give them like at least an eight. Okay, all right. Um, over over triple the num the average number of records. Yeah, which really really that. high quality, and they sold well, and they charted yeah. well. I could do an eight. I think I could do an eight. All I right, think an eight works. Uh, and I, I've got news for you. My numbers aren't getting any lower as we move through instrumental and songwriting talent. Right. I mean, these guys played so many different genres so well. Like I mentioned, I really think Martin Barr is one of the most underrated guitarists in rock music. He's fantastic. I'm not going to argue with you nearly yeah. as much as you think I am. Yeah, okay, good. You're being very uh, defensive. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're on the same page good. here. Uh, I mean, really, Ian Anderson's voice which I think is very solid and unique and good to listen to, it's is the, the weakest part, yeah. aspect of this band. I mean, they've uh, had they've had a lot of people in and out, which is something to consider. Yeah. But generally, I mean, to play a lot of these toll arrangements, you've got to be a pretty high-quality musician. For sure. Um, I do think that a little bit of it does get taken away by, A, the vocals, which are the weakest part. Sure. And, B, that that like varying lineups i know yeah. you have to assume that each one of them is a good musician but it does take a little bit away that you have I so many people in I and out that. because it's hard to get a gauge on like we're not just classifying martin Barr. we're not just right. classifying you know yes. so a little bit off of them they're still okay. very high up okay so are we still talking about an eight here yeah i think okay. we're still talking about an eight and i think it goes up for songwriting I would agree. I don't think, I mean, with the exception of the Beatles, has any band that we've covered on the podcast hit this many different genres this well? I mean, Tull is a classical folk, blues, jazz, progressive, yeah. heavy rock band that kills it at everything that they do. Absolutely. I think And the arrangements are, are out of this world. I think that, yeah, we're probably, this is definitely- This has got to be a really highest. high score. This uh, this is in the nines for me. I would agree. Hands down. It's not over a nine and a half. I'm going to be honest with you there. Okay, that's fine. But definitely maybe like a nine two. Um, I'll take it. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, it's because it's up there. It's, it's, it's really up there. Up there. Uh, and then Poetic Town, I also think Ian Anderson's a really good writer. He is. I'm and not. I'm not in the nines where we no. were with this. But Jethro Tull's the poems are good. The poems are good. I feel like so doing the listening and especially the listening you gave me because mm -hmm. I I knew that they were all going to be higher sure. quality songs. 
so I really listened to like the lyrical breakdowns of them and things like that. He definitely hit like this like magical moment in Aqualung. Yeah. Where like the universe kind of aligned and it was a wonderful both message and way that it was done that he didn't quite hit in other places. True. But it wasn't it was No, it's always good. Wonderful. I really like Thick as a Brick too because, you know, as we talked about how it's a one song long concept album. Right. But the the album is also making the whole point of the album is to make fun of concept albums and yeah. the ridiculousness of a concept album. Which is funny which because, is done so because it came out after Aqualung. Yeah. It definitely had to be because all the fans were like, yeah, this exactly. is a concept album. Blah, blah, blah. And then the funny <laughs> thing too is Thick thick as a Brick over the course of the 45-minute song has a lot of like smaller acoustic breakdowns. And when right. they were performing it live, that's when while Ian Anderson was trying to concentrate, fans would be like yelling and screaming and it would throw them off a little bit. So in a passion play, there was none of that total breakdown uh, so where he could yeah. get distracted from the fans, which it's so interesting that part of his arranging came from that. So where do you want to go with anyway, this? Anyway, um, relative to the Wallflowers, I'm a little bit higher. Okay. All right. Um, give me a number, Nick. Let's see, where I, let's see if I agree with you. Seven. Okay. Sure. A cool. seven works for me. Now, what I mentioned before, Ian Anderson is, in my opinion, more symbolic, you know, like the Ian Anderson with one leg in the air playing the flute like that he represents an instrument uh-huh. almost more so than any other person just because there are so many like does eric clapton represent guitar or does Jimi hendrix or okay. does david gilmore or does eddie van halen here's the only thing that i'm going to say i think if i went to a hundred people on the street okay and i said name a classic rock guitarist they might give me 10 different names totally but I would hear the same names a lot of times. Yes, you just definitely if I the went same to a hundred people mm-hmm. and asked them to name a classic rock flautist, I feel like I would get six or seven people that said Ian Anderson, another and, ten or fifteen people that said that guy from Jethro Tull, and right. then the rest of the people would be like, "Who? What? Do the, okay. is the flute in that?" I just think that the average consumer won't feel that. Okay. So like I don't want to give them an X factor for it. That's All right. what I'm, I I'm I agree with you. Like right. I'm with you that he is synonymous with the instrument. Right. I just think that the average listener doesn't care. Okay. That's all. I mean, that's I, that's what I'm. That's the only way I'm going to go with it. Understand. And I look back. We did not give Tommy Hall any credit for being, for being synonymous <laughs> synonymous with the electric jug. Maybe we should have. Maybe we should have. I mean, I was I was pushing. <laughs> I wanted I wanted Toll to do even a tiny bit better, but I feel like I they did plenty okay. They they did pretty well. Uh, so with that being said, uh, why don't we move on to our final band of the episode, The Stooges? Okay, let's uh, wrap things up with The Stooges. All right, The Stooges, uh, also known as Iggy and the Stooges, uh, they were an American rock band. They were formed in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in 1967 by uh, Iggy Pop and then the Asherton Brothers, and then uh, Dave Alexander on the bass. Excellent. Yeah. I would sort of like to hear Tyler go first on this one. I don't think we've heard from him first. Yeah, so uh, I'll just kind of give them a little bit. So they were active from 67 to 71, then again from 72 to 74, then took a long hiatus, Uh and then uh, from 2003 to 2013, they were back up and running. Uh, and the three albums we went over for The Stooges were the first one, which was the eponymous album The Stooges, which was released in 1969. Uh, then we listened to Raw Power, which was their highest selling album that came out in 1973. And then the 2013 album Ready to Die. 
Yes. Uh, and so that is uh, and that I was. is the listening. Um, so Tyler, yeah, why don't you go first with what you thought of the Stooges album? Their first album kind of sounded par for the course of what was going on in the rock industry. Sure. During 69. Um, we went to the moon then. That's a great point. Which was probably what influenced. <laughs> <laughs> but my least favorite song on the entire album was We Will Fall. <laughs> yeah. I get it. That song is 10 minutes long. Uh-huh. The opening of that song just kind of sounds like a whole bunch of musicians checking to see if the gain is right on their instruments. <laughs> yeah. Everything else on the album, though, is enjoyable to listen to, but nothing really stands out. There's nothing all that memorable on this album to me, honestly. See, I would disagree, uh, but but I'll let you finish talking. Um, I mean, like, there's... I Want to Be Your Dog, which is, like, one of the most popular tracks from this album. hmm Yeah. But, I don't know, for me, it just kind of, like, th- this is, like, a very, like, unclean, dirty rock sound Oh, totally. To and it. I think it's supposed to, the whole record's supposed to sound very, you know, <laughs> yeah. buzz. Which, um, I've never outright hated, but I've never really enjoyed, um, as somebody who, you know, has grown up with with a, a pretty vast knowledge of of speakers and surround sound systems and you know how speakers should be tuned and whatnot I don't really like listening to music that makes it sound like there's something wrong with my speakers yeah yeah that definitely happens with this record I and agree. there's so much going on in here that's like did I did I blow something was it supposed to sound this way? Uh, but it's not it's not as extreme as some other groups that I've listened to. Um, all in all, my takeaway from this is just it's a it's a very almost kind of standard idea of a rock album. Like if okay. somebody said, "Oh, let's listen to a rock album," this is like the first thing that would come hmm. to your mind okay. as far as like what it might sound like. They did not stick out to me as anything special. special. Okay. Sure, okay. not from this album, I should so- say. Nick, I would love for you to go second because I want to be the first one to talk about raw power. Okay, sure. No problem. Um, So I appreciated a lot of what they were trying to do. I get the idea of this album, but I don't love it. Um, I don't hate it either. I think there were interesting guitar parts, especially on like the opening track, 1969. I appreciate what Ron Ashton was trying to do. Yeah. I mean, like this is definitely one of the first records of the punk movement like i want to give credit where credit is due this is you know this is one of the bands this is one of the records that is formative of a genre yeah Um, absolutely but it just felt so fuzzy that it just seems like the the recording was a mistake it's (laughs) you know the bass was so thick that it's like yeah you can hear the Almost like the Jesus and Mary Chain had recorded it. <laughs> oh, it was not. Listen, um, I will say it was definitely much better. not as bad much, as that. No, no, not as bad as as that, definitely. Um, but it was just not super for me, but I understand mm-hmm. why this would be influential. I understand why people yeah. would look for this. It's just not my bag. Okay, so that was what you had? Yeah, I don't want to get into I okay. figure you want to cover some stuff. So... Uh, the first thing I'm going to get out of the way right now, I do not like Iggy Pop's voice. 
at all. No. Um, I'm not going to sit here and talk about it for every single song. I just want to be very upfront. I don't like his voice. So a lot of this is going to kind of be colored by that thought. Uh, but I agree with you that it was a very influential album. I get it. It's not my style of music. Um, this the kind of heavy, muddy distortion. I'm not a huge fan of like really muddy, like mid sounds. Agreed. Uh, if you get too like into the mids where it kind of washes things out, it does kind of bug me personally. Uh, but some of this stuff was really well done. Uh, the song 1969 really sets the tone for what they're going for. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I can recognize that even if it's not something I enjoy, if you know who you are, I can appreciate that. Totally. Stooges know who they are here. Um, the song I Want to Be Your Dog, I thought, while it did have a little bit of heavy distortion in it, I did like these kind of like interesting tambourine jingles they had going on throughout the song. Um, you already mentioned the song We Will Fall. It, it, it sounded like they were yeah. tuning their instruments in a lobby somewhere. Yeah, and it just kept going on the same exact sound for 10 straight minutes. Yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, continuing on, uh, I'm going to skip No Fun because, yeah, it was no fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I It was decently vocals. Uh, or, I think it was a good choice for kicking off a side of a record as yes, far as, I, you know. Uh, yeah, I feel like it, like this is the only track where I thought the vocals were decent, but the lyrics were just really not good. <laughs> no. So it really brought that whole thing down. Um, that's pretty much it. Uh, some of the stuff felt repetitive. Uh, all in all, it was a hard-hitting opening album for this band. Right. Now, when they reissued it in 2005, do you know who wrote the album liner notes? Is this your Six Degrees it's of not, Totem it's Tops? Not, okay. It's not. It's not. Who wrote it? Alice Cooper. Wow. It is a Six Degrees of Totem Talks, but it's not I the can't. big one that I'm waiting for. You are it, hyping this next up album, so much. Next album. Okay. Okay. So, next album, Raw Power. So, uh, we've... We've brought in a new guitarist. We have shifted Ron Ashton from guitar to bass, uh, which he was not happy with. Right. And I definitely felt that throughout this album. Uh, the bass it like felt like in a word weaponized. Oh, I like that. Like yeah. really aggressive bass lines. Like it really felt to me like he took the you know I'm not saying it's a demotion, but um he felt like it was a demotion. Right. Uh, from lead guitar to bass. And was just like, I'll show you what a bass can do. Uh, Search and Destroy is the opening track. Um, arguably their biggest song. Yeah, thank you, Guitar Hero. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, very, very popular song. Uh, most of this album, again, kind of falls into the category of I don't love this style of music. Uh, definitely better than the first one uh, throughout uh, in terms of they're more sure of who they are. Um, it, they kind of have a better handle on the distortion a little bit. Uh, the title track was like a really powerful in-your-face track, which made sense for the title, Raw Power. Uh, the one song I really liked was the song Gimme Danger mm-hmm. uh, because it was a, a, a more slow-paced kind of acoustic blues track. At least track. for like the first 45 seconds, yeah, it was that, very acoustic. It built into something else, mm-hmm. but... For a moment, you're sitting there, and it really made you like kind of lean in because yeah. the first song, "Search and Destroy," is so like heavy distortion, really chaotic, like in a good way, chaotic, but still chaotic. Uh, and then it kind of brings you in with that, that that beginning of "Give Me Danger," and then like smacks you with yeah. some more loudness. Uh, but the one thing I wanted to talk about uh, for Raw Power is the controversy of this album. So Iggy, uh, when they recorded this album, was uh, shopping it around, and Columbia Records turned it down and they were like nobody's gonna want to listen to this it's just not really well produced not well done 
So Iggy was like, we need to mix this better. So he turned to his friend at the time. He was in the entourage of David Bowie. Right. So David Bowie went in and mixed this entire album for them. Uh, so the the original release was mixed by David Bowie to mixed reviews from the fans of the Stooges. Now, they were very much like, we want that harder sound that we're used to. Uh, so the fans released an album that they called Rough Power, which hmm. was just like a tweaked version okay. of Raw Power. And then in 1995, I believe, the album was re-released with Iggy Pop as the mixer. So he remixed this album himself. Oh, so much worse. And yeah, it is brutal. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, Not of course, strength. what I did, and uh, I know what Nick did, uh, and I don't know if you did, Tyler, but honestly, it's fine. I, I wouldn't want to inflict this on too many people who don't love this style of music. We listened to one track on the Bowie mix and one track on the Iggy mix. Bowie mix, Iggy mix. And it is night and day. I don't know how you can manage to take what was good music. Like, I enjoyed the the, the first version. Mm-hmm. And just, like, it, a, a true testament has been made with this to the power of the mixers and producers of records. 100%. Because, well, I listened to Iggy's version first, and I liked this record less than the first one. Yeah. And then I heard the Bowie version. I was like, yeah. okay, okay. It, it is absolute night and day. Um, so that's the controversy. Uh, the other band members, uh, Asherton, uh, Ron Asherton, and uh, a couple other, I don't know if uh, Scott Asherton said it, but they were just like, yeah, it didn't need to happen. We all, when we were younger and Raw Power first came out, the Bowie mix, we were kind of against it because we felt like it wasn't really what we were going for. But as we matured and stuff, we realized that it was the better choice. It was the better way for our music to be heard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Iggy's, not only is it just cranked up louder to the yeah. point where it is peaking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you actually lose some instruments. Like, you mm. lose some of the, the guitar lines and some of the... Right. You'd never want to do that. Nope. Uh, so that's what I had to say. The Bowie mix, a positive album. The Iggy mix, yikes. Yeah, a big, big yikes. Such yikes that, I mean, this album ended up being the end of the Stooges for some time. For a long time. Yeah, for, you know, several decades. Yes. Uh, and things got really, really bad for them. You know, Iggy's drug problems and all that other stuff. But another thing that David Bowie was super helpful in, in trying to bring him out of. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate Bowie. But, I mean, you've covered so many of my notes that I just kind I'm of sorry. want to. That's fine. Because I really, all I want to talk about for this album is my six degrees of totem Which I'm, for I'm, the week. I can't wait. So, all the way back in episode five of season one, we listened to Elton John and Tyler if I recall correctly said uh, he took one of my favorite Elton John songs one of my favorite songs of all time your song and said you know I really love it but there's something about the Ewan McGregor version from Moulin Rouge that I like better and Ewan McGregor has also done a cover of the song Give Me Danger in from this album wow. in the film Velvet Goldmine so boom two Ewan McGregors I'm out I, I can't believe you managed to to bring renowned actor Ewan McGregor into the Six Degrees of Totem. I used the force. Wow. Oh, I get it, because he was in Star Fleet? Something like that. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Shout out Mandalorian, uh, Obi-Wan series. I love him. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. I just I was Tyler so excited to talk about Ewan McGregor. Tyler, knew, Tyler knows that I was kidding and really liked Star Wars, but 
but I, I think he's just offended that I even was, would joke about it. No, I was just waiting for the joke to be funny. Oh, well, that never <laughs> happens. All right. Tyler, what did you think of this record? Guys, I've said before. Don't let him go third because we talk about it all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I knew I, I had to say okay. it all, though. I had to. Yeah, so I assume I, that you're parroting our opinions, then, is your... All right. I will I will parrot your opinions. <laughs> Sound was bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Um, do you want well to start yeah. by talking about Ready to Die then? So you get we to can't be possibly. the first person. Sure. Um, I, doing this podcast with you guys has really taught me how much I do not like grunge and pump and punk music. Um, I've always suspected as much. Yeah. But this episode in particular really, really made that clear to me. Okay. Yeah. Because like. I know when I first started talking about the Stooges and their first album, I I made it clear that their first album just wasn't for me. But that was only so our listeners didn't know by the time we got to the last album that absolutely none of this was for me. I wanted you to think that there was a chance that I might surprise <laughs> right. you and be like, Building this, suspense. Was, this was the one, guys. No, this was all just, just a... A really unpleasant experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's honestly, you can talk about it more if you want, but I think you said it all. Uh, I will say real quick, my only severe note is that this was hot garbage. It was bad. It was so bad. Um, ready to die. And Nick, you said it very aptly. You were yeah, after exactly. listening to this. And enemy gave it an eight out of 10. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> what? Maybe. Maybe they got a version that didn't have vocals. Yeah, maybe. maybe they got the instrumental only vocals. So we talked about jtull.com right. and how Ian Anderson's voice was shot. Right. I would take Ian Anderson singing every song on this album. Hands down. Iggy Pop's voice is just gone. Terrible. And now don't get me wrong. He already didn't have a good voice. Right. Now- before any fans of the Stooges like kind of get up in arms, I fully recognize Iggy Pop was a phenomenal frontman. Sure. The whole shirt off, the dancing around the stage, he definitely had a great energy. It was almost like not singing what was a part of the culture. Like right. that was what they were going yeah, for. He almost, definitely you know? he definitely was a phenomenal frontman. I, I but like we're we listened to the albums. We didn't watch concerts and the vocals are just so bad. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I will say, there was two or three songs on this album that I thoroughly enjoyed if they were sung by another person. Like, they were really beautifully, like, instrumented and ornamented, and, and the lyrical line itself was really nice to listen to as a lyrical line, except that Iggy was singing it. Yeah. Uh, and that was basically it. Uh, those songs, for me, would be Unfriendly World and it. The Departed. Yep, those are the, they're the only two I made notes on. Yeah, they were wonderful songs, uh, to the point where my note is, we should cover this song. Wow. I would really like to cover the song Unfriendly World because I think it would be a really good song. Right. I just, I couldn't believe that it was, I, yeah, that's what I had to say. Really reduced vocals. Uh, the whole album itself was just, eh. there was a couple highlights, but again, they were really drugged down by his voice. Right. And you know, the first three albums, they had so much like energy and they I mean, it wasn't something that really caught on with us, but they felt like they were doing something. They felt like right. they were making a cultural statement that their music meant something. And this album does not 
feel that way at all. Agreed. With maybe the exception of the two songs that you mentioned, I don't get genuineness out of any of this. I don't get that these were songs that they felt that were important to be written or that they wanted right. to put out a, a message or, you know, even simple messages in, in punk music mean a lot to the people who are writing them. There's a reason that they're arranged to the music the way it is and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, also just to say it, Double D's might be the worst song that we've ever heard. It was, I mean, it's up. It was so bad. It's close. It was terrible. It's been a while since we've listened to White Knight. True, true. But I'm putting Double D's on par with some of the worst I music we've ever listened to. What a terrible song. I will say I would take an entire record of the song Italian Girls by Hall & Oates. Hands down. Before As that song I. again. As would I. Uh, but... We'll compare it to uh, the Ooh. Todd Rundgren White yeah. Knight album at some point. To yeah, see that which stuck one out to me. I was just like, "Oh my god, how did he write this? How did who let him put this out?" <laughs> I I wish I could tell you. Yeah, not good. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's that. Let's just move on. I, I can tell you that it was released by Fat Possum Records. Yeah, they made a mistake. Uh, it's an independent record label. <sighs> um, that's that's all I've got. Okay. Well, they normally sign younger rock acts, and then the Stooges. Who knows? Yeah, Whatever. Right. Okay. Uh, let's grade them. Okay, so their cultural impact is all influence on other musicians. It's because it's not like they're a well-known household name and people know I, a lot of their the songs. The only thing I'm going to disagree with you on is I think Iggy Pop is, is a cultural very figure. well known. Sure. He's a cultural figure. Right, he's a cultural figure. Um, but I mean, I wasn't going to argue them for a low score. I was going to say like, don't think like, well, I don't really know as many Stooges songs, or most people don't know more than Search and Destroy because of Guitar Hero. Yeah. But they were so influential. Like, I think they also deserve the, you know, godfathers of a genre points that we attribute in X Factor, just like we gave the Ramones. I mean, the Ramones really popularized and made mainstream punk, but Iggy and the Stooges had to come first to help create the genre and the feelings and the subculture so i do think that they're very important in starting a genre i do think they deserve x factor points for that i do think they deserve cultural impact points for that i agree uh did you have a specific number in mind i did not okay (sighs) it's tough because there were so many years where they were just out of the spotlight correct i mean I, i think we agree they're below average not by a lot, though. Not by a lot. They're Not in the by a lot. Force. I mean, I think they need to. They need, you're going from like a one hit wonder sort of because Guitar Hero made Search and Destroy a popular song, a yeah. band that was spent most of their career when they were playing very underground, but they were just so influential on a genre. Yeah, they were, and I and again, Iggy Pop himself is like a phenomenon. That people have like lampooned his style of sure. Manning, where like they rip their shirt yeah. off, blah blah blah. So I I think maybe like a four and a half. I'm okay with it, and we're gonna give him X Factor points for punk. So. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, Breath of Work. There were five records. Um, which listen, I want to be very clear here. Normally, five records is. Almost average. Almost, yeah. But the fact that they were spanning so many years and only released five records, that's a detriment Mm -hmm. to me. It's a detriment, I agree. I mean, I don't think the music was all that good. I mean, I listened to a couple of tracks from the 2007 record just to see. They weren't special. I mean, they didn't make me want to rip my ears off necessarily, but they're not particularly good either. And this 2013 album was just complete trash. Uh, So really, we're talking about, when we talk about their discography, we're talking about the three albums from 1970 and 1973 that kind of put them on however small of a map and helped get punk started. And I still think that, I mean, 
it, it hurts. They're definitely, you know, there's nothing that's going to pull them above average. It's not like they sold. No. They've become like cult phenomenons, but they, they're still, none of them are certified gold in the United States. No, it's Nothing low. certified it's in the United States. Unfortunately, this is probably like in the threes. I, I, agree. Uh, I agree. Maybe even like a three and a half. I think that's honestly kind of generous. So. I think it is two. It, yeah, that's that's what it is. Uh, instrumental talent is all, not good. Not good. I mean, I... I'm gonna be honest with you. I've already I've already said my piece about his voice. I think Ron Asherton is a competent musician, both on the guitar and the bass. Correct. I think that the drums, Scott Asherton on the drums, was okay. Uh, right. He didn't he didn't hurt me or hurt the band in any way. Uh, but if you're talking, they're probably average, and Iggy is bad. Iggy is bad. So again, I'm I might be at a three. Okay. Yeah, I'm as not, sad I'm as it is, like I might yep. be at a three. No, I'm I'm fine and with it. And we're, we're it's not going to get good. Nope, nope. I mean, it was pun- it's like it's not supposed to be good because it's punk. It's right. like you're angry and you're playing three chords about it. Um, and then yeah, yeah, I, and and nothing against punk. I, I no. mean, it do- it's just one of those genres that doesn't lend itself well to some of the things on our criterion. I mean, yeah, by its very nature. If you're only playing three, four chord songs, like you're not going to do well on instrumental and songwriting talent. It is what it is. Yeah, I mean that's just the unfortunate truth of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, uh, so I mean, what do we give them here? Like a two? Um, I'm willing to give them a three. I'm willing to give them okay. another three, just because of how you know those songs ended up kind of creating their own genre. Like that, they were I'll a jumping them, off I'll point. I'll give them for... a three. I'll give them a two, and then a whole point for Search and Destroy because I like. Okay, Guitar it's Hero. a good. Yeah. It's a... It's a good song. It's a good song. Uh, Poetic Talent is also not good. <laughs> no. Uh, it's not, very not bad, actually. <laughs> uh, a lot of their songs uh, use repeated lines, mm-hmm. uh, which, sure, as a song structure is okay, but you're not writing lyrics. Nope. You're saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, this is honestly probably their lowest category I, I for agree. me. I agree. Uh, I I might be in the twos. I'm fine with it. Like, I might be a two. Two seems fine. Yeah, I, I, I can't give them any more than that. But I'm going to give them another two for genre creation. Yeah, that's pretty standard. So they, they, get, they get punk. They get two for being, you know, uh, on the Mount Rushmore of punk. Yes, so. uh, and I'm very okay with that. Yeah. All right, uh, so, so we've got Nick, scores. That's, yeah, that's going to wrap us up for, for our scoring yeah. of all of And I bands. don't think anyone will be surprised that Iggy and the Stooges did not win today's episode. They lost with an 18. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the Wallflowers came right in the middle, which was 26.4. Respectable and, for yeah, them, Yeah, very respectable. I'm, I'm very proud respectable of them for that. For a one-hit wonder band. Yeah. Uh, and then to no one's surprise, as we wax poetic for like 40 minutes about Jethro Tull, they got a 39.2. Yeah. They're one of our highest scoring acts of all time. As and today's winner. Yep. As they should be, yeah. Congratulations right. to Jethro Tull. Uh, Ian, if you want to come on the show, oh, uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you come talk about what it's like being the world-renowned flautist for an influential rock band. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, guys, hopefully you enjoyed the beginning of this season. Uh, if you did, please uh, check us out at uh, lowtotemband.com or our Instagram, low underscore totem. And, uh, you know, tell us what you think of the episodes. Use the hashtag totem talks. Uh, if you really enjoyed it, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you didn't like it, you know, you don't have to leave a bad review. So uh, true. We we would appreciate it if you didn't. Uh, <laughs> maybe you. just yes. tell us what we could do better in like a private message. Right, and we'll change. We'll change everything about our show. At the drop of a dime. First person who doesn't like. Yep. It, first so. person who doesn't like us. We're good, right, Thorby? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> anyway, 
Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Uh, have a great 2021. Uh, we'll see you back next week uh, with some more fun stuff. Nick, who are we doing next week? Oh, that's a great. So stay tuned because you will get to hear about Top. I think that's how that's pronounced. Pretty sure that's what it is. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Cool. Uh, But most importantly, have a great day. Mm